Nehemiah chapter 4. If you're visiting with us or you're just joining us this week, uh, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, and as Jason mentioned, we see often Nehemiah praying, and we'll see that again in chapter 4. Before we get into the text, I just want a quick note about last week about the guy named Malkijah. I had put the wrong reference in the notes, in my notes even, and so I just want to point these out. These are in your notes correctly this week. Uh, Nehemiah 3 verse 11 mentioned a guy named Malkijah as a son of Harim, and I mentioned how in Ezra, this same guy was mentioned in a long list of guys who had disobeyed and taken uh, women to be their wives who they should never have done. And I gave you the wrong uh, reference there. It's supposed to be Ezra 10, verse 31, that specifically mentions a guy named Malkijah as the son of Harim, same guy. The point remains from last week, and the point, the reason why I pointed him out to begin with was that in Ezra, it seemed like he was in a list of, of guys who had disobeyed. But in Nehemiah, years later, we see a guy who's faithfully building the walls. And we don't know his heart, but it would seem that his actions had changed and that's a revelation of his heart, a revealing of it. And so the point remains, don't let a past failure keep you from serving the Lord today, now. Even if you've messed up, do what's right now, as we think Malkijah did. So I also want us to remember that Nehemiah chapter 3, which is what everybody, what's Nehemiah 3? Build the wall. I'm testing to see if you're listening to the kids thing. Build the wall. It, it was just a list of all the families and all the people who, who rubbed elbows and shoulders and did the work together. And it is a wonderful picture of the body of Christ at work. To see people with different skills and abilities doing the work together is incredible. Um, Nehemiah is emerging in his, this book as, as really a pretty incredible leader. Uh, he is a godly guy. We might say that he's the, the protagonist of the story. If you know literature, protagonist is kind of the main character, the good guy. Okay, but, but what is, what is a good story without an antagonist? Which is the bad guy. Well, we see those guys pop back up in chapter four. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And they oppose what God is doing. Remember, in the first chapter, you can look back at chapter 1, verse 10. They just kind of are displeased to hear that somebody has the best interest of Jerusalem at heart. They're just kind of upset to hear that news. Well, in chapter 2, verse 19, well, it escalates. It escalated to open mocking of them. And even starting to tell some lies. Remember, he said, are you going to rebel against the king? Well, that wasn't their intent, but that's what was being said. In chapter 4, we see these men take their displeasure with what's happening in Jerusalem up another notch, another step further, and it moves into threats of physical violence. So we want to look at Nehemiah 4, just the first six verses together. If you would, read them with me, and then we'll pray. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall... He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? 
Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are the captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse 6, so we built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Let's pray. Lord, we know, because it's been mentioned several times already today, we know that the work of salvation has been fully done on the cross. Christ has done it. And so when the people worked and when Christians are called to work, it's not to earn what you freely give. Lord, we, we work hard because we love you so much. And so as we reflect on opposition, as we reflect on work, especially the work of Christ, Lord, I just pray our hearts are, if needed, broken with the gospel today. If needed, Lord, I pray that you would mend our hearts. I pray that you would join us together and join us with Christ. In his name we pray, amen. I want to call our minds um, back to Jason's history lesson with the kids several weeks ago. I don't know if you remember that. We kind of walked through where Nehemiah came in the scope of Israelite history and of world history. Nehemiah was basically leading the third wave of Jews back to Jerusalem. So God used world superpowers at the time to disperse the Jews because of their disobedience, because of their idol worship. He said he would do this. We looked at some of those verses. And God used uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians to do this. They, they captured the Jews and they would remove them from their land. They would try to break tradition so that there was nothing pulling them back. Well, when Persia comes on the scene, things are a little different. In God's grace, uh, the, the leaders of Persia, they're not following the same script. So they don't try to pull people out and break all ties. They actually let people go back to their homelands. And so we see a group of people go back to uh, Jerusalem under Zerubbabel's leadership in the first part of the book of Ezra. That's kind of the first wave. Uh, the second wave goes back with Ezra at the end of his book. That's about, I don't know, maybe 30, 40, 50 years later. And now about that much time after that, Nehemiah is coming back with another wave and he's preparing the city for God's purpose. He's trying to rebuild the walls and the gates. And we've seen it all along. One of the, the topics we mentioned was that it's good to plan and it's, it's prudent to do that. Nehemiah had a plan. Uh, Nehemiah is showing us that not only is he a gifted planner and administrator, but he loves the Lord and he trusts him. And that's why he always goes to prayer. His, that's his first instinct, pray, and then get to work, right? God had promised that 
someone was going to come and sit on the throne in Jerusalem, and they'd be from the line of David. But Nehemiah is way more than just walls being built. And this is my point. Nehemiah is way more than just gates being hung on their hinges and operational again. Because God promised that a king would sit on the throne, there was more to come. But there was no one in Jerusalem at the time that was going to sit on the throne in the line of David. The timeline of world history, guess who it would be? Guess who the next king to sit on the throne would be? Jesus. Hundreds of years after these events of the Old Testament, Jesus comes on the scene, and he's the next person to sit on this throne. So while there's a whole lot in Nehemiah to learn about leadership and about administration and planning and working hard, and and even as we'll talk about today, preparing for opposition, Nehemiah is not all about that. Nehemiah is really about God restoring his people and preparing them for the fulfillment of his covenant through Jesus Christ, his son. That's really what this book is about. Now we know how difficult change can be in our lives, even when it's changed for the better. It's hard. It's not easy. It's a process. It can be tiring work to slay sin and squash our selfishness, isn't it? But it's, it's a worthy work. It's a good work because it's for the glory of God. And God's work in his people throughout the ages has been kind of like that, right? A process. It's been coming in phases sometimes. It's not a difficult process for God to do, but boy, it is for his people. It is for us, isn't it? So all the while, the people of Jerusalem are working to rebuild the walls. You guys understand God is doing something underneath the surface in them. God is preparing them for the coming of his son in fulfillment in the fullness of time. And that's what Nehemiah really is about. I don't want to lose sight of that. But right here in chapter 4, we see human opposition to what they're doing. So last week, it was all about the wall, building the wall, families doing this, people from all different walks of life joining together. And now stuff is happening. And that draws the attention of the naysayers. That draws the attention of the antagonists in the story. Look at verse 1. Sanballat, he's antagonist number one. He is the first to speak. He's angry with the progress that's being made on the wall. And he just starts bad-mouthing the Jews so that they could hear. He, he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Any of you like being called feeble? No. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are, are they going to fix it themselves? Are they going to uh, offer it, sacrifice on it again? Are they going to you know, revive these burnt up stones and make their walls and they're laughing. And it seems like they're feeding off of each other too. Isn't that often the case when it comes to to ridiculing someone? If you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you work with kids at all, you see this on the playground, probably in your home, whatever it's, it's like, it's like blood in the water sometimes. And that's what it seems like is going on here. His buddy Tobiah comes in and he's got like this, this super intense burn. He's like, yeah, if a fox goes up it, it'll fall down. Like, good one, Tobiah. Like, really nice. I don't know, maybe that meant more back then, but. <laughs> uh, 
Either way, good or bad insult, uh, they were not happy that the wall was being built. Um, They were not happy that Jerusalem, that the people of God were no longer weak and vulnerable, broken down. See, there's a good chance that these guys and surrounding peoples enjoyed exploiting the Jews, taking what they wanted, not giving them fair prices on goods and things like that. And so now there's some stability happening. Nehemiah's coming in. God's using him and the people to do a lot of work, and they're not happy about it. And so from the outside looking in, though, it might have seemed like a lost cause to these guys. They say, will they finish up in a day? I think we'll translate that to now, and they're like, do you guys know how long this is going to take you? And they're trying to discourage them with this. They're saying, you, are, you think you can finish it in a day? This is going to take you forever. Why even start? Why even put in the effort? It looked like foolishness from the outside. Does, does that concept sound familiar at all to you? From the outside looking in? See, what Christians are called to do and how Christians are called to live looks very silly oftentimes foolish to the outside, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 talks a lot about this and the gospel and how it looks like foolishness. The message of Christ crucified, why many churches have crosses in their buildings seems foolish. Why would you remember a guy who was murdered on a cross? That is, that is silly. Some would have other words for it. But this is what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians. He says that the, the message of Christ crucified sounds ridiculous to those who are perishing, to those who reject it, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And he's talking about unto salvation you you can't be saved if you don't believe what's true about the cross about christ being crucified for you opposition is not something that christians should be surprised by brothers and sisters don't be surprised by it but it's also not something that we should try to avoid at all costs either we preach christ crucified we're called to in fact paul says i'm not going to preach anything else i don't want to confuse you I don't want to make you think something different about the gospel. This is it. This is a big deal. And he says in preaching the gospel, it's always going to be a stumbling block to some, and it's going to be foolishness to some others. That's reality. But I hope you're convinced that, like Paul, he says, it pleases God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That's what Christians are convinced of. Yes, we believe in Christ crucified. We preach that. But we also believe that it's in that power of God that many are saved. That any are saved. Do you believe this? About the cross? About Christ crucified? Is this how missions is shaped? Is this how we do missions? It should be, right? 
It, it, it should be Christ crucified, taking the gospel message to others, even if it looks silly, even if it sounds foolish. If, if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you follow the Lord, it, today, more than maybe any other time in our lifetimes, what we believe sounds like foolishness to many. There's a sovereign God who personally created the universe and exercises ownership over every part of it. Sounds goofy to a world that believe, believes in Darwinian evolution. Human beings have intrinsic value and specific worth regardless of their skin color, their sex, or their age, including the preborn. And that sounds foolish to some people. God makes people male and female from the start. God designed the marriage relationship to be between a man, one man, and one woman. The only way to peace with God and freedom from sin is through believing in Jesus crucified. These statements are core doctrines to what Christians believe, and yet the world thinks they're foolishness. And as a result, they often think that of those who believe them. So, I mean, on and on the list could go of things that we believe that seem silly to, as the way Paul puts it, is those who are perishing, those who are rejecting that. So it shouldn't, shouldn't be surprising then that Nehemiah and the Jews in Jerusalem experienced ridicule and opposition from those who didn't understand or didn't care to understand what they were doing or why they were doing it. Now, let me make a, uh, an observation here from what we read and say something that might be surprising. Because it shouldn't be surprising that Christians face opposition. But let me say something surprising regarding this text. What the mockers were saying, what Sanballat, I don't know about Tobiah, but what Sanballat was saying was kind of true. The Jews were not a strong nation at this point in their history. They were, they were a little feeble. They were kind of weak. You had a bunch of inexperienced builders, right? Perfumers, goldsmiths, politicians and their daughters building this wall. That looks kind of feeble, doesn't it? He was kind of right. And he was right in that there was no way they were going to finish this in a day. No chance they could do this that quickly. It would take time. It would take effort. They didn't have a huge task force. They didn't have a bunch of building equipment. They didn't have backhoes and excavators out there helping them lift these stones. Like, it's, it's families doing this. I read this week, uh, discouragement is such a powerful weapon because it is somewhat the opposite of faith. Where faith believes God and his love and his promises, discouragement looks for and believes the worst and tends to pretty much forget about who God is and what he has promised to do. See, discouragement is a powerful weapon of the enemy because oftentimes it does contain a little bit of truth in it. Kind of like this. But... The truth of the matter is that it neglects an even deeper principle, and it's this. God is always with his people, and he's always for his people. 
And Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and the rest of those who were outside looking in, mocking and making fun, they did not know or realize this truth. God is always with his people and he's always for his people. Nehemiah proclaimed this boldly. Look back at chapter 2, verse 20. When the, the antagonists were harassing them there, look at what he says. Nehemiah answers, he says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. He knew God was with him. He knew God was for him in this. How else could he stand before the king who could end his life in a moment and pour his guts out and the king be not only sympathetic but almost partner with him in this work to join with him? Yeah, take whatever you need. Nehemiah knew God was with him. He was convinced of it. Now look at verses 4 and 5. This is his prayer. After the mocking and the ridicule, Nehemiah jumps right to prayer. He says, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let their sin and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. I I think it's, it's very interesting here. Nehemiah never directly addresses the mockers here, does he? He never looks at Tobiah or Geshem or Sanballat and defend himself or defend what they're doing or even try to explain it at all. What does he do? He just prays. He just turns, he turns away from the opposition to prayer to the Lord because he trusted him. This is what he does every time we've talked about this. But the prayer that he prays here, it's not a soft prayer. And I hope you understand what I mean when I, when I say that, when I say soft prayer. If, if you were with us when we studied the book of Psalms uh, years or more ago, there was a group of Psalms that were called imprecatory Psalms. And these were Psalms where the author is in despair and distress and he is calling on God to exercise his judgment and to eliminate his enemies. And some of these prayers, these psalms, these are not soft psalms either. They do not highlight the love of God. There are a hundred or more psalms that probably do. These highlight the judgment of God. And it's a little bit like what Nehemiah prays here. Let me give you just a flavor of these imprecatory psalms. Psalm 74, verse 22 and 23 Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. The psalmist is saying, God, don't forget how bad these people are and what they have done. Psalm 79, verse 10 and 12 Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. And verse 12, return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts which they have taunted you, O Lord. See the similarities there? Nehemiah is is saying, God, remember your justice. He says, turn back their mockings on their own heads. Don't let them get away with this, Lord. I think it's, it's valuable to point out, 
Not only did Nehemiah pray, he didn't address the opposition, he prayed and addressed the Lord. And him and the people, they never took vengeance into their own hands, did they? They never went out and pursued the enemy. There were times God called his people to do that. It wasn't here. They never addressed the enemy and they never took off after them. They gave it over to the Lord to deal with their enemies. How could they do this? I I think about opposition that Christians may face, that you guys may be facing today, when you go to work tomorrow or whenever. And there's opposition there. And you're a Christian and people know it. And they mock you. They ridicule you. They don't understand. How do we deal with opposition? How could Nehemiah, and we're talking about physical threats here of, of violence. How could he just not get back at them and just give it over to the Lord? Well, I think the answer is in the text. Look at verse 5 again. He says at the end of that verse, he says, For they have provoked you to anger. He didn't say me. He didn't say us. It wasn't his anger that mattered. What these people were doing, these enemies, were angering God. The battle belonged to the Lord, and Nehemiah and the people were sure that he would handle it. Is that how we deal with these sorts of situations? Do, do we appeal to the Lord when someone is getting on us or making fun of us, or do we just respond in human anger? You can't watch a political debate without seeing this played out. The, the, the issue it comes to be a very small part of what's going on, right? It's just a smear campaign often. We're just responding one after another. Do we do the same thing in our relationships? Do we display trust in the Lord like Nehemiah, or do we tend to rush to take matters into our own hands? And then, without any further explanation or fanfare, verse 6 comes on the scene. It just says, so we built the wall. So the people worked. The people had a mind to work, Nehemiah says, and, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. So we see, this is cool, we see an answer to Nehemiah's prayer here, don't we? But it's not the answer that any of us would have expected probably. I don't know if it was the one he expected, God answered the prayer, but it wasn't the way that he thought. The enemy wanted to divide, wanted to discourage, wanted to tear down. And they took their best best shot in verse 5, remember? Uh, it, it, they said these things, Nehemiah says, in the presence of the builders. That just means that everybody building the wall heard what was being said about them being feeble, about them never being able to do this, mocking them. They took their best shot, but God brought the people of Israel together with a common goal, a common interest, and a common spirit and mindset. That's what Nehemiah says. They had a mind to work. That means mindset. They got it together in their heads that this was a project that God had called them to and they were going to do. So they built the wall. Despite the opposition, God gave them a common mind to work. And it says it was half finished. They were working together. They were working hard. They were working progress, making progress at their work. And the mockings continue. We'll find that out next week and beyond. When Christians join together around a common biblical goal, guys, God moves in ways we might never expect. We see this in the Great Awakenings. We see this in revivals, even in other countries and even in our own country. 
when God's people rally around a biblical mindset, incredible things take place. It's things that we might hope for, but not expect even. I mean, look at what happens in verse 5 and 6. This is a case in point here. Nehemiah asks God to do something about their enemies, but God does something in his people instead. Have you ever seen that kind of thing happen in your life? Where, you know, sometimes we can be so busy waiting for God to change someone else, the other person, that we resist and even miss what he's doing in our own life. Chances are you've been there, like me. It could be someone we're in conflict with. It could be someone we just care about deeply. But when we pray... We expect God's going to do something in them. And sometimes God does a work in us and we can miss it. When God answered Nehemiah's prayer here, it didn't really affect the people mocking them, did it? Because they just, the people just built, they just got to work. They didn't respond. It didn't really affect Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem but you believe it, it affected God's people because they had a mind to work and they got half the wall done. We're talking a matter of days, brothers and sisters. Now, it wasn't a complete rebuilding project. They were filling in gaps. They were fixing broken down parts. Didn't all need to be built from the ground up again. And yet God was giving them incredible uh, progress on the wall. It was so much so that it was being noticed from the outside. So they asked for God's deliverance and God worked in a way they might not have seen or understood or expected and yet it worked. And so it reminds us that we need not be so focused on trying to make sure that the other person is changed that we miss the Spirit's work changing us. Brothers and sisters, I'm talking primarily Christians here. The reality is that there will always be opposition to the work of God. Jesus made this really clear. In this world, you will have troubles. But I've overcome the world, he says. So there's opposition. It's going to happen. What is your prayer in those moments? Is it a prayer of vengeance? Is it taking action in vengeance against those who've hurt you or someone you care about? Is it, is your prayer in those moments maybe a more self-centered, self-focused prayer? Deliver me, save me. Or is it, Lord, I trust that you're going to move in your way. Maybe it's possible that you're listening today and you're the one who's skeptical about what God is doing. You're the one on the outside looking in saying, I don't think that's going to work. I don't think God could really do that. Maybe, like the antagonists in this story, maybe you're even opposing God's work. Maybe you're listening today and you're thinking about how your life has not turned out how you thought it would be. How the church or people that call themselves Christians have hurt you. Maybe you're so focused on God changing everything and everyone else around you that you've missed what he is wanting to do in you. See, in, in, cha- in chapter 4, verse 5, Nehemiah asked God, he said, God, do not cover their guilt. He says, let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. Now, his reasoning was sound 
in asking the Lord these things because they had provoked him to anger. That's what he says. Here's my question. Doesn't that describe us? Doesn't that describe you? Because I know it describes me. In my rebellion, in, in my selfishness, in how I think that I don't, I'm not all that bad and I don't really need a savior, someone to die on a cross for me. In believing and living this way, I'm provoking God to anger. I'm opposing him. Listen to Romans chapter 2 verse 5. Paul says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you realize that in your rebellion, you're storing up wrath for yourself? Jesus himself in John 3.36 says, Whoever does not obey the Son, does not see life, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now the Jews rightly believed that obedience to the law of God through the sacrificial system atoned for their sin, or the word for atone is cover covered their sin. This was true, but it was only for a time, wasn't it? Till they sinned again. And then new sin, new sacrifice. New sin, new sacrifice. Do you see the pattern? This, this is how it went for them. But the remarkable thing about the mercy of God is that in Christ, he atoned for sin for all time, for good, forever. Jesus' sacrifice is completely sufficient, not just for covering sin, but for taking it away. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, 11 and 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, talking about himself, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A single offering for all time those who are being sanctified. Obedience to the law can never take away sin. You can't be good enough. You can't say, well, I believe that God, if I have more good deeds than bad deeds, when I get to heaven, I'll be allowed in. That's not what the Bible teaches. Obedience to the law, being good enough, is not the way. Christ's sacrifice, believing, staking your life on that, your eternity on that, that he has forever perfected those who believe it and are being sanctified by it. That's why God would let you into heaven. Because of Christ, because what he has done, because you're being sanctified by his death, life, and resurrection, and his spirit is in you. In Christ, your sins aren't just covered. They are, but there's more than that. In Christ, your sins are completely removed. They are forgiven. Listen to Psalm 103, 10 through 12. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And hear this, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In Christ, your sins are completely removed. 
To his people in Isaiah 44, verse 22, God says, I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Do you see the similarities here? Nehemiah says, God, don't cover their sins. Don't blot them out. But in Christ, those who turn to him by faith have their sins covered. Have their sins blotted out, forgiven, removed. Blotted out means erased. It means wiped away. It's like a dry erase board. You spend your whole life writing your sins on that board. At the moment of justification by grace and faith alone, that board is wiped clean. Praise the Lord that as Psalm 103 says, he doesn't deal with us according to our sin, according to our transgression, according to what we deserve. Instead, Colossians chapter 1, 13 through 14 tells us that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There is forgiveness in Christ. There is redemption. The only hope for people like me and people like you who provoke God to anger, who will always fall short of being good enough, is to trust in and put our faith in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. Jesus wants to be that for you today. The call has gone out today. You've heard the truth. Who we are is rebellious by nature, and yet God in his nature is loving and wants to wrap you into his family. You can do it today. We're getting ready in just a few moments to see evidence of a life that has been changed in this way. We're grateful to see this because church, this is not, today is not just for Amelia. Today is for you. Today is for me. Today is for our community and her family who she is boldly proclaiming and saying, this was true of me. That storing up wrath thing. Now she might not have spent as many years as you have storing up God's wrath, but she's been doing it. And in a moment in her confession and in her salvation, God has removed that away. And what we're going to see and participate in is a picture of that. Praise God for it. Let's pray and we'll have a song of reflection and then you'll be dismissed. Jason, would you dismiss after the song and we'll go over for the baptism, but let's pray together. God, uh, we just rejoice in seeing the similarities between what a life looks out with, looks like without Jesus, where sins are not forgiven, they're not blotted out, and a, and a life with Jesus who has been forgiven. We don't bear the record of debt in our, anymore. Christ has bore it. He's nailed it to the cross. We bear it no more. We rejoice in this, and we rejoice with our sister who has believed this and it's true of her. And so we're thankful for the opportunity to participate in this ordinance that you've given, not just for her, but for the church, for, for, for your people to be reminded that you still live and move and change lives. 
You can do it for a young person. You can do it for an old person. And so I pray, Lord, that you would have your way in us, in our hearts, and remind us of the need that we have for a Savior. We have it in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.